0: Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Craft coming to you from Chico Life Radio, KKXX Studios, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Tuesday evening, reflecting into the great ancient Christian thinkers. Uh, tonight, we have another opportunity to engage one of those great thinkers, St. Ignatius of Antioch. And if you are a faithful listener to this radio program, you do know that I have uh, typically John O'Hare joining me, and I do tonight have John. So, John, it is great to have you with me another night.
1: Great to be here, Joe. Thank you.
0: So, John, we have really entered into the world of the Church Fathers, a phrase that maybe some of our listeners are not aware of. We just kind of really jumped into St. Clement of Rome last week, so I thought what we could do is spend a little bit of time reflecting into... Uh, what we mean when we say uh, the Church Fathers. Luke the Evangelist wrote of the first Christians back in his book of Acts. If you go to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, he says, Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul. I think that single line illuminates really the history of the first six Christian centuries. You know, as heirs to the apostles, the leaders and teachers of the early church, the fathers of the church, as we've come to know them, were intensely concerned with preserving the unity and, and integrity of the company of those who believed. They were defenders of the faith. You know, many books tell us the story of the first Christian centuries uh, as a succession of creeds, you know, councils, persecutions, and heresies. But what's important for us, it was much more than that. It was the story of a family and of how the fathers of that family strove to keep their household together to preserve the family's patrimony, to teach and to discipline their children, and to protect the family from danger this is what the fathers of the church were about. And only when we understand them as fathers can we truly understand the church fathers for what they are. In the New Testament, the apostles saw themselves as fathers to the newborn church. You know, St. Paul reminded the Christians of Corinth that he was their father in Christ there in his first epistle, uh, chapter 4, verse 15. He addresses both Timothy and Titus as his true children. St. John also greeted his flock as, what, my children in his third epistle, uh, chapter 4. St. Peter explicitly refers to Christians of his own generation as the fathers in 2 Peter 3, 4. So this was the language even found in sacred scripture. Uh, So some of the earliest fathers were disciples of the Apostles themselves, and the teaching of these men, called the Apostolic Fathers, has always received special veneration within the Church. And once again, these are the Apostles that we're talking about now. Saint Clement of Rome last week, Saint Ignatius of Antioch tonight, and of course, Saint Polycarp of Smyrna next week. Now, why Apostolic Fathers? Well, these are the figures that lived in the generation of the apostles or in the immediate aftermath of the apostles. Okay, so in in the the case of St. Clement of Rome, we have a man, John, who as tradition holds, was actually consecrated bishop of Rome by St. Peter himself. Okay, St. Ignatius of Antioch, the figure we are going to talk about tonight, was a pupil of St. John the Evangelist. In fact, uh, tradition holds— There is a verse in the Gospel of Mark that uh, I'm going to find here real quick. Uh, The Gospel of Mark, if you are to go to chapter 14, verses 51 to 52, we have these verses. This is interesting. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, some hold that that's Mark the evangelist others, John, others speculate that that's actually St. Ignatius of Antioch, that he makes a cameo appearance, if you will, in the Gospel of Mark. And now, again, it's only speculation, but it's kind of fun to think about that. The point is, he was a pupil of St. John, like that of St. Polycarp of Smyrna. Uh, And so, in fact, that would make what St. Ignatius of Antioch, a contemporary of Polycarp of Smyrna. So, it's really striking to think about these men Um, who had such an important role within the church, so interconnected with the apostles themselves, Uh, so important. Couldn't we say, John, on one level, if we're talking about, say, Ronald Reagan, and we knew Ronald Reagan, when we were speaking in front of a a gathering of maybe, say, 500 people, if we start off with a story about how we actually knew Ronald Reagan, whatever we were talking about within the context of Ronald Reagan— we would have their attention, right? (laughs) People would just, they just, by their nature, would respond to that. And so in God's infinite wisdom, certainly he uses the fact that these men, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and Polycarp of Smyrna, were in fact those who knew the apostles, and they had a certain sense of authority because of that.
1: They did. The fathers of the Church are incredibly important because they came so close And as you said, their job was to preserve the teachings of Christ. The gospels were likely written by this time. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, Antioch, by the way, is located in Turkey, apparently knew John. And that was his connection with the apostles. And the emperor at the time condemned him to death. And he was going to be killed in the Roman circus in front of animals uh, by lions or something like that. And on the way, he wrote a series of letters. To Ephesus, Magnesia, Trales, Rome, Philadelphia, Smyrna, and then a personal letter to Saint Polycarp, whom mm-hmm. he knew. These letters are about as verified as you can get. There is no uh, question among scholars today that these came from him. Mm-hmm. They have gone through the letters, and uh, there's a, some short ones of his that are absolute. I mean, short segments of his that are absolutely verifiable. And uh, he is extremely important because he talked about how the church was organized and he talked about church doctrine. Mm-hmm. You'll get into some other stuff that he said. But those letters he wrote along his way to his martyrdom are, are, are really the clues we have as to what kind of a human being he was.
0: Yeah, and one of the, the key players in here for all of this, uh, like last week, John is Eusebius of Caesarea, right? Yes. The historian. Uh-huh. Um, certainly in his work, Ecclesiasticus, but in other works. If you want to uh, get into the Church Fathers, if this subject matter is really enticing for you, and I'm speaking to our uh, to our listening audience right now, um, Eusebius is a fun figure to read because he not only, John, gets into the Church Fathers, but he actually goes back to during the time of Christ. You know, he's, he offers up some rich reflections into Ah, uh, what the crucifixion would have been all about. So he's, he is, uh, he is, he is the historian of of historians, the the archivist, as we talked about him last week.
1: One of the fun books he wrote that was recommended by Father Mitch Bakwa is he goes into the mass how mm-hmm. it was organized, and I mean that's interesting to read. Yeah,
0: very interesting in light of some of the subject matter that we're going to get into tonight, John. So if you want to jump into a couple of those excerpts from from his epistles, that'd oh. be great.
1: What one of the uh, excerpts I'd like to read is his letter to the Tralins. He mentions a lot about bishops and presbyters; Those are priests and deacons. And here is a quotation from the letter to the Tralins. Indeed, when you submit to the bishop as you would to Jesus Christ, it is clear to me that you are living not in the manner of men, but as Jesus Christ, who died for us, that through faith in his death, you might escape dying. It is necessary therefore, and such is your practice, that you do nothing without the bishop, and that you be subject also to the presbytery, as to the apostles of Jesus Christ our hope, in whom we shall be found if we live in him. It is necessary also that the deacons, the dispensers of the mysteries of Jesus Christ, be in every way pleasing to all men, for they are not the deacons of food and drink, but servants of the church of God. They must therefore Guard against blame as against fire. He is mentioning priests. Mm-hmm. He is mentioning the, the priests or presbyters, the deacons, and how these people are to be listened to by the early Christians.
0: Amen. And it very much, John, it uh, hits upon something we talked about last week, the importance of uh, sacred tradition. You know, 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, stay steadfast to the oral traditions which I have handed on to you. It also highlights other verses as well. You know, 1 Corinthians eleven two has that same kind of language. You know, when we talk about tradition, as I noted last week, we were talking about that one thing that speaks to the handing on. You know, I mentioned the deposit as well. You know, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he has a number of verses where he's talking about the importance of guarding the deposit which has been handed on to you. In fact, he closes his first epistle with these words. This is Paul writing, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Again, entrusted is the paratheke in the Greek. And so what does he mean? In the historical sense, a valuable object given to someone so as to guard for safekeeping. Now, What we are not talking about right now, John, is the idea of taking a valuable object, putting it away in some treasure box for it to become an antique. It's actually the opposite of that, right? It is to take what has been handed on to you and share it, right? Because it's more than just an object. It's more than just something. It's a person, Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is talking about here is, hey, I am handing on to you what has been delivered to me. Guard it and share it. This is why it's really interesting to note when you get into the language of this. When you look at the word traditions and you also look at the word succession, in the Greek they come from the same word. So we use the phrase apostolic succession, which which speaks to the continuity through the centuries of uh, that the church is teaching, from one apostle to the next, from one pope to the next. Uh, this is what is happening here when you start talking about the traditions which have been handed on to you. Uh, This is about the succession. It's interesting if you were to go as uh, early as the third century, the teachers began to justify their teaching, their doctrine, by showing a chain of unbroken teaching stretching from father to father back to the Apostles. So by the fifth century, this had actually become a practice almost a requirement for theologians and teachers. So all of this is very important when you start talking about a figure like Ignatius of Antioch, who's putting John such an emphasis on this apostolic continuity, on this continuity between one bishop and another, and how these bishops are called to be in harmony with one another, and especially the Bishop of Rome. This is how you get underneath uh, this whole understanding of universal church that again they are in harmony with one another working on one front and that front is the teachings of Jesus Christ
1: now one of his letters he also mentions the partaking of the bread yes Paul mentions in 1st Corinthians and in yes. another uh, uh, epistle Can I read a little bit okay this letter was uh, written to the Ephesians and it says i will send you further doctrinal explanations especially if the lord should reveal it to me should reveal to me that all of you to a man through grace derived from the name join in the common meeting in one faith and in jesus christ who is of the family of david according to the flesh the son of man the son of god so that you give ear to the bishop and to the presbyters with an undivided mind breaking one bread which is the medicine of immortality, the antidote against death, enabling us to live forever in Jesus Christ. I, I like that quote because here we have Christ, true God, true man, son of man, son of God, and the breaking of the bread. And the breaking of the bread.
0: Yeah, and you know, John, as you're talking about that, I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 11. I know we're jumping into a lot of verses, and this is this is a lot of fun here. You know, what... St. Ignatius is talking about really highlights 1 Corinthians 11, that passage you mentioned, and even to verse 23. Now, let's let's think about this for a second. Here, Paul is talking about the importance of handing on the truths of Jesus Christ, delivering the truths of Jesus Christ. And look at the context he gives these verses now. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here you have St. Ignatius of Antioch, maybe 50 years later, writing about the importance of the breaking of the bread as the medicine of immortality. And why is he doing this? Well, he's simply fulfilling the command that Paul gives to the Church of Corinth. And also, as we talked about last week, St. Clement of Rome, how do you do this par excellence? Well, you break bread. Have we not talked about this verse, these words of the institution of the Eucharist, John? You know, this Mm. is the new covenant in my blood. Remember, they understood this in the first few centuries as the New Testament. This is the New Testament in my blood. He did not say, write this. He said, do this. And this is what they did. They handed on the faith by doing what? Breaking the bread. Remember that great uh, verse, Acts 2, 42? They came together in that wonderful scene of interpersonal communion where they were obedient to the teachings of the church. They were breaking bread, and they were singing hymns, and they were offering up prayers. This was the life of the early church. And so from St. Paul writing to the church of Corinth to St. Ignatius of Antioch writing his letters. What you have there is this continuity, John, that was highlighted by this need to hand on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And this is done most perfectly here on earth in the breaking of the bread. And that's what's so beautiful about, uh, you know, when we have this opportunity to look at the apostles and Uh, the Apostolic Fathers, we gain insight into not only the life of the early church, but how it is a response to Jesus' great command, do this.
1: One other thing the the Apostolic Fathers give us is the continuity from Christ on through. It wasn't like the church just suddenly began around 315. These guys are here. And another little aside, they quoted quite liberally from Scripture. And I have heard that if you go through all of the Fathers of the Church, you could put a Bible together simply by going through their quotations of Scripture.
0: Yeah, it's rich. It's rich. So John, as we transition a little bit from some of those epistles, what I did want to do was to take up (laughs) uh, some of his last uh, epistle. In particular, his prologue, where he gives us some very important words, and then also the epistle itself to Romans as he's talking about his desire for martyrdom. Uh, well, let, let me let me take a step back. We have in his letter to the Church of Smyrna the first usage of the word Catholic, right? He's responding to the need to be in union uh, with the one universal church, and he says, wherever Jesus Christ is, there is uh, the Catholic Church. The Greek used the um, and, and an important addition to this would be found in his prologue to Rome, when he said, The church which presides in the place of the region of the Romans, and which is worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of the highest happiness, and which presides over loved, is named from Christ and from the Father. Striking. So here we have in this uh, epistle to the church of Smyrna, uh, this this coining of the term Catholic. This is where it comes from, and we must remember the word Catholic means universal, whole, entire. And he's addressing uh, the question of whether or not a church is uh, separated from Rome, and he's saying, No, 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 no. We are all on one front. The church that Jesus Christ came to establish is Catholic, universal. Gentile, Jew, Greek-like, as John says, right? So very important, historically, to appreciate this moment in 105 AD, a moment that continues to be the development of sacred tradition.
1: When I was reading this letter, there was a footnote, and the Greek katakolike it was there, and I remembered my Greek from the 50s. And sure. <laughs> it was thrilling just to see it.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's exciting. And why is it exciting? Because once again, John, it's a it's it's a, a letter that is in continuity with the command given by, you know, the apostles themselves and of course to Paul. The word continuity is so important because in that continuity, we can have a more authentic conversation with the past. and that's that's what is so important. Now, in regards to his his letter to Rome, we can properly say, that uh, you can feel the freshness of the Apostle's ardent desire to become a saint when you read some of these letters, and it comes through uh, quite strong in his epistle to Rome. And I'm just going to pull a few excerpts and just kind of reflect upon this, and it really will bring us back to that conversation of, of the Eucharist, John. He says this I write to the churches to impress upon them all that I shall willingly die for God, unless you hinder me. I beg you not to show an unseasonable goodwill toward me. Let me become food for the wild beasts, through whose favor it will be granted me to attain to God. As you were speaking to earlier, there, John. I am the wheat of God. "'So let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beast "'that I may be found the pure bread of Christ.'" Ooh, it's rich. "'Rather, entice the wild beast "'that they may become my tomb.'" Gosh, what raw language. "'And may leave nothing of my body "'so that when I have fallen asleep in death, "'I may be no trouble to anyone.'" "'Then,' he says, "'shall I truly be a disciple of Christ.'" when the world shall not see so much as my body. Pray to Christ for me, that by these instruments I may be found a sacrifice to God. I do not, as Peter and Paul, issue commandments unto you. They were apostles. I am but a condemned man. This is his humility speaking here, John. Yes. They were free while I even now am a servant. But when I suffer, I shall be the freed man of Jesus and shall rise again emancipated in him. And now, being a prisoner, I learned not to desire anything worldly or vain. Oh, that's rich.
1: The blood of, the seat of the church is the blood of martyrs. And mm-hmm. the way his feast day is October the 17th. Yeah, He wanted amen. to die. He wanted to be, don't stop this process of me going to Rome. I want to die. Yeah.
0: You know, John, wine comes from the grape when it is uh, crushed pressed and processed. Bread comes from wheat when it is grinded down, crushed and processed. What we have in this this excerpt, in this epistle, John, is really a sharing in the Eucharistic sacrifice of Christ. You know, St. John Paul II in one of his documents in Ecclesia de Eucharistia, which is simply the Church of the Eucharist, uh, has some, I think, important words for us. He says that uh, every time the Son of God comes again to us in the poverty of the sacramental signs of bread and wine, the seeds of that new history, wherein the mighty put down from the thrones, thrones and those of the low degree are exalted, take root in the world. For those farmers out there, they know that wheat also possesses this kind of exponential value, when its grain falls into the ground, it slowly multiplies. You know, Interestingly, John, the word humility comes from the Latin humus, which means from the ground of the earth. We plant Christian roots in this world when we allow ourselves to be made humble and poor in the Eucharistic sacrifice like that of the great Saint Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, When we talk about what St. Ignatius of Antioch is talking about, what we are talking about is producing more fruit. The more we allow ourselves to be grinded down uh, like wheat, as St. Ignatius of Antioch talks about it, the more fruit we will produce, the more wheat we will produce, the more bread we will produce in Christ. That's the beauty of this teaching— Is it not rich with the imagery of being made pure bread for Christ? And this was his desire. This is all he longed for. This was his humility. You know, wow, isn't it powerful to reflect upon, as you just spoke to Tertullian's words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And certainly (laughs) the seed leans that he is planting by allowing himself to become food for the wild beasts there in Flavian Amphitheater. Powerful, powerful stuff.
1: It is. He was indeed a father of the church. His letters were so, I mean, the fact that they're still well preserved, I mean, you know, they're, they're authentic, um, makes him just a real forerunner of the fathers of the church. And he was right there. He died in 110 or maybe a little bit before So he was right there from the Mm get-go and helped with our continuity, passing on Christ's message.
0: That's right, John. And when you talk about the Church Fathers, there are a number of pieces that need to be in play, overarching, or not just the, it's just not the um, orthodox of doctrine, but also the holiness of life. This is what rests at the heart of what this man was about, holiness of life, and amen to that. So that's a wrap, John. I thought by way of closing prayer, we can just finish up with a few more words from St. Ignatius of Antioch in his letter to Rome. He says this, The prince of this world would rather carry me away and corrupt my disposition toward God. Let none of you, therefore, who are in Rome, help him. Rather be on my side, that is, on the side of God. Do not speak of Jesus Christ and yet set your desires on the world. Do not let envy find a dwelling place among you, nor even should I, when present with you, exhort to it if you are persuaded to listen to me, but rather give credit to those things that I now write to you. For though I am alive while I write, yet I am eager to die. My love has been crucified, and there is no fire in me desiring to be fed. But there is within me a water that lives and speaks, saying to me inwardly, Come to the Father. I have no delight in perishable food, nor in the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, the heavenly bread, the bread of life, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, from the seed of David and Abraham. And I desire the drink of God, namely his blood, which is incorruptible love and eternal life. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. You've been listening to Seeds of Truth. Heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe
1: at JMJ at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholcraft.org or call KKXX
0: during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to The Seeds of Truth on KKXX.